0: We have been speaking about the graded stages of the spiritual path, and actually, as we saw, we're not talking about the path itself, but we're talking about the graded stages of how we develop our minds, ourselves, however we want to phrase it. And what we are doing is basically expanding our motivation, starting from a smaller scope and... Broadening and expanding our scope until it becomes full. So each stage builds on the previous one. And we also saw that there are two ways of going through this development. We can follow a Dharma light version like Coca-Cola light with which we are concerned with improving this lifetime, making our lives a bit better. And for most of us, this is where we need to begin. However, the traditional presentation of this does not even consider this level because it assumes a belief in rebirth no beginning and no end so the real thing Dharma the real thing Coca-Cola is speaking of this development within the context of rebirth and we saw that the initial level of motivation as with all levels of motivation have an aim a reason for attaining that aim and an emotion behind what drives us to achieve that goal. So here we are aiming for improving our future lives, ensuring that we continue to have a precious human rebirth so that we can continue developing ourselves to the greater goals. Because it's very difficult to achieve the ultimate goals in just this lifetime. It takes a long time, a lot of hard work. So the reason to try to continue having better rebirths is so we can continue on the path. So that's what we plan to do when we've achieved this goal. We're not talking about going to heaven in our next lifetime and just having a good time. But the emotion that drives us to seek this better rebirths is dread of having worse rebirth where we'd have no opportunities to work on ourselves and improve and confidence that there is a way to avoid this, and we've discussed this in terms of safe direction or refuge, which is basically to try to stop completely, forever, all the limitations and negative aspects that accompany our mental activity, especially in terms of our behavior, and act in constructive ways, and we do this within the context of appreciating the precious human life we have, opportunities and understanding that we will definitely lose this at the time of death. We have no idea when that will come. Now, intermediate scope, we now think about, well, even if we have these so-called better rebirths, precious human life, nevertheless, to just continue like that is unsatisfactory. Life goes on, and as we've described several times, nature is that it goes up and down, we have no certainty how we're going to feel in the next moment. Maybe happy now, and in the next minute, we all of a sudden feel sad or depressed. The littlest things will upset us. And of course, we have the recurring problems of, in each lifetime, having to be born, be a baby, not have any control over our bodily functions, learn how to walk and talk. I mean, this is really boring. And go to school, who wants to do that? and find a partner, and find a job, and Shopping all of these the and face sickness, and old age, and death, not only in ourselves, but with our loved ones as well. So, there are many unsatisfactory things about this, and our emotional problems are still going to be there with this precious human life. We get angry, we get upset, we are greedy, we have attachments, to people and to things, objects. We're naive about cause and effect. We're naive about reality. And so we act in very naive ways, very stupid ways, by thinking that the way I act and speak to you has no effect on you, as if you didn't really exist and didn't have feelings. I mean, this is complete naivety, isn't it? So these emotional problems are going to continue. And we will continue to up and down experiences in any fortunate rebirth and also go from fortunate to unfortunate better to worse rebirths and situations and just goes on and on and on and on and this is what we call uncontrollably recurring existence or rebirth the Sanskrit word for that is samsara and the goal I should say that we would like to achieve on this intermediate scope is liberation from this in other words, have our mental continuum go on, because it is going to go on, as we said, it has no beginning and no end, but not to continue in this never-ending cycle, or what seems to be never-ending, of uncontrollably recurring rebirth. We have to put an end to it. When I say never-ending, that means if we don't do anything about it, if you don't do anything about it, it's going to go on forever. And we want to make a stop, a true stop, an ending of this samsara, reason for that is because we want to stop the suffering and all the problems that come, even if it isn't the gross, gross problems, but the subtle problems. We want to stop it. That's the reason for wanting to achieve liberation. Liberation, by the way, is called nirvana in Sanskrit. And the emotion that drives us to that is called renunciation, usually. Now, we need to understand what this uh, word actually means. Pronunciation is not a terribly good translation. The word itself actually means a strong determination. And that determination is the determination to be free. Beside, I have had enough of this. I'm fed up with it. On a deeper level, I am profoundly bored with this. And enough already. I have to get free. And the understanding that we have with that is that in order to be free, we have to get rid of the causes of the problem, the causes of the suffering. So we are totally willing to give up not only the suffering, but the causes of the suffering. So I am determined to be free of my anger, of my Greed of attachment, of all these things. So we're not talking about, you know, I have to give up ice cream or chocolate or like that. That's a very trivial understanding. What we want to get rid of is our attachment to it, which is based on an exaggeration of its good qualities. This is the most wonderful thing, and it's going to make me happy. Ultimately happy. As we saw before, if chocolate were capable of doing that, then the more we ate, the happier we would be. And that's not the case, it will make us sick. Now, to sincerely be willing to give up our attachments, anger, these type of things, that is very, very profound and very difficult. We shouldn't trivialize that. It's like, for instance, I mean, there's always this joke, you know, somebody's banging their head against the wall, but they're afraid to stop because they don't know, maybe if I stop banging my head against the wall, it'll be worse. <laughs> and this is what I'm used to. So I'm banging the head against the wall. Well, that's an extreme example. More common examples are being in an unhealthy relationship with somebody. But we are afraid to break off that relationship because we're afraid of being alone. And so we keep up this unhealthy relationship and we're miserable. And I don't want to say anything to my partner because maybe they will abandon me. So we're not talking about... Strange experiences. We're talking about what we all experience all the time. No aim, reason for achieving it, emotion behind it. And in order to then achieve this goal, we have to know, first of all, that it's possible and how to do it. This is true of each of these spiritual goals. we said rebirth, liberation, and enlightenment. Of these are quite complicated topics to demonstrate to ourselves that It is possible to achieve these goals, and I am capable. Many people skip that, and that's a big mistake. Because if we're not convinced that I can achieve this goal, why are we bothering to work toward it? What do we do? We're just playing a game. And eventually we reach a point where we say, this is ridiculous, What what am I doing? So we need to really examine deeply, and this gets us into the whole topic of what we call good in nature, the natural purity of the mind, etc., are these disturbing emotions. Is this confusion part of the fundamental nature of the mind, which means it has to always be there every moment, or is it something which is temporary and can be removed so that it never returns? And we saw from the debate that we had before the tea break that this is a very complex topic, and debate about it, question it, and so on, is absolutely necessary. It's not something that we just accept on blind faith. The more we question it, the better. Clear up our doubts. Then we have confidence in what we're doing. Now, do we have to wait until I'm 100% convinced? This gets into a very difficult question of what does it mean to be convinced of something? What does it feel like? That's not an easy question, is it? What does it feel like to be really convinced of rebirth? Well, that takes a very, very long time. But if we at least are going more in the direction of, well, maybe it is possible, then we can proceed. We think this is garbage, then obviously we can't work with it. But thinking maybe it's true would be based on some sort of reason, not just blind faith, or my teacher said it was true, so I believe it. Buddha himself said, don't believe anything I said just out of faith in me, but test it as if you were buying gold. See, is it really true? And as I said, it's a long process if we take the belief in rebirth that this is actually a fact. If I look at my own example and share that with you, I've worked with this for many, many, many years. I've been studying Buddhism now for, I think, 45 years, a long time. And I certainly reached an intellectual understanding based on reason of why it makes sense that there's rebirth. But I must say what really threw me over the line of really on a more emotional gut level of believing it mm-hmm. was knowing my teacher, his name was Sir Rinpoche, he was one of the teachers of His Holiness of the Dalai Lama, knowing him in two lifetimes. I was his very, very close disciple. I was with him for nine years. I translated for him. I was like a secretary. I arranged all his travels. So I worked very closely with him. And he died, was reborn, found again. He was in this Tibetan system of Tulkus. Now he's 25 years old. And I have an extremely, extremely close relationship with him, similar to what I had with the previous one. Different, of course, because the age difference is different. When I first met him when he was four years old, the people in his household said to him when I walked into the room, do you know who this is? And he said, don't be stupid, of course I know who this is. And from the very beginning, from his side, as a four-year-old, extremely, extremely close and affectionate with me, much more than with other And it's remained like that as he's grown up. And at various times, and I can remember, we were looking at a video of his previous life, and he would say to me, and he doesn't just say garbage to me, he said, oh, I remember saying that. So, in addition to all the logic and reasoning, it is this experience that really has helped me to go beyond that line of, uh, well, <laughs> maybe, probably, and so on, to say, okay, yes. No, these points are not so easy. You know, Is it really possible to gain liberation? Is the nature of the mind really pure? Is it not easy? And even if we understand it rationally, to understand it on an emotional level is much deeper. But we work with it. And on this intermediate level of motivation and lamrim, we have a very detailed explanation of the mechanism of rebirth, so it explains the mechanism. This is explained in what was referred to before, these 12 links of dependent arising. It's just the name of a very complicated mechanism, and this deals with this whole issue that we've been discussing these days about karma, karmic aftermath, etc., and we need to understand very well various types of disturbing emotions that we have, anger, greed, etc., how they arise, what underlies them, which is what I've called confusion, in a very simple way. We're confused about the effect of our behavior on others and on ourselves, and more deeply, we're confused about how I exist, how you exist, how everything exists. Very simple terms. We think of things as existing independently by their own power, separate from everything else, wrapped in plastic by itself. And even if we think of everything being interrelated, we still think a lot of things wrapped in plastic connected with sticks. And so there are many, many levels of subtlety that we need to understand of impossible ways of existing. What is impossible, but nevertheless, what? Our confusion projects onto everything. And we need to understand what we call voidness. Voidness means an absence, a total absence. Something is absent, not there. And what's not there is a real reference of these projections of what's impossible. Let's use a stupid example. That's such a stupid example? Do you have Santa Claus, Father Christmas here? Okay. We see somebody that's dressed in a red suit and a white beard. And they look like... What do you call it here? Santa Claus, Father Christmas? So, we think this is Father Christmas. Why? Because it looks like Father Christmas. But that appearance of Father Christmas is not referring to anything real. There is no actual Father Christmas. So, that's what Voidus is talking about, an absence of a real Father Christmas that corresponds to this appearance. Now, to understand that doesn't deny that there is a man there that looks like Father Christmas. We're not denying that there's a man there. We're just clarifying that the way that that man appears to us is deceptive. Looks like it's really Father Christmas, but it's not really Father Christmas because there is no such thing. So, that's the way that our minds work all the time. We project all sorts of nonsense that you exist as the most beautiful person or you exist as the most horrible person or I am God's gift to the world or I am no good as if we or they exist like that independently of everything else and uh, never changes. This is truly who we are. But nobody exists like that. That's impossible. Everything exists relative to other things. Holy as the Dalai Lama always uses the example of our fingers, fourth finger. Is it big or small? Well, it's big compared to the fifth finger, but it's small compared to the middle finger. So from its own side, by its own power, is it big or small? No. It's only big or small relative to other things, dependent yeah. on other things, and dependent on our concept of what big and small is. So, anyway, you get the idea. So, what we are working on on this intermediate level is to... Get rid of this misunderstanding, to understand voidness. On gaining the understanding of voidness in order to get rid of this confusion, because this confusion is what is causing this uncontrollably recurring rebirth, as explained in this very complicated mechanism of these twelve links, having to do with karma and karmic aftermath and activating it and so on. Now to gain this understanding of voidness, we need to have concentration. And to have concentration, we need to have discipline, ethical discipline. The example that's used is cutting down a tree. The understanding is like the axe,
1: the sharp <laughs>
0: axe. But in order to use that sharp axe, we have to always hit the tree in the same place. And that's like concentration. And in order to be able to pick up the axe and swing the axe. In order to hit always in the same place, we need strength. And that strength comes from ethical discipline, which is restraining ourselves from acting destructively, and so on. And so we have the presentation here of taking the various sets of vows, so either the full or the novice level of vows of a monk or a nun, or the vows of a household, male or female. Somebody that's not leading a celibate life in a monastery and has a, not necessarily a family, it could be single, but in India, that was, in ancient India, that was quite rare. usually had a family. Vows are called vows for individual liberation. So they're aimed for our liberation. So we are avoiding basically different types of behavior that would be motivated by some sort of disturbing emotion. Or activity which would interfere with our meditation practice, uh, things like that, or living in a community with other monks and nuns. And taking a vow is uh, very important, very strong. Why? Because a vow taken for life frees us from indecision, right? Say we're trying to give up alcohol or cigarettes. Every time that People we are with, have a drink, or have a beer, or something like that. We have this indecision, well, should I really have it, should I not have it, I, you know, I'm trying to give it up, etc. So that's a very uncomfortable state of mind, actually, having to make the decision every time that we are challenged. We make a vow that's final. We've made a decision, that's it. I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to smoke, whatever the vow might be. And then it doesn't matter if everybody around us is drinking a beer. We've already made up our mind. So actually, rather than being a restriction or punishment, these vows actually give us a lot of strength. And it liberates us from indecision, especially concerning things that would be detrimental to our achieving final liberation. There's no obligation to take the vows. We have to understand that. Nobody's saying you have to take a vow. Nobody's saying you have to become a monk or a nun and live in a monastery. Mm -hmm. However, if you're really serious about attaining liberation from samsara and really are serious about getting rid of anger and attachment and greed and so on, taking these vows will make it easier. Now, maybe we're not ready for that. That's that's fine. We need to evaluate ourselves honestly. That's the intermediate scope. And although... Concentration and gaining this understanding of voidness or reality is part of this intermediate scope. Nevertheless, they're not discussed in full at that stage because they also are in the advanced scope teachings. Now, the advanced scope, we don't have too much time. So okay. hopefully it's okay if we go a little bit past our scheduled time. On the advanced scope, we think in terms of I'm not the only one in the universe. There's everybody else and everybody else is in the same situation as I'm in. Everybody else has suffering, uncontrollably recurring rebirth, just as I don't want to have suffering and I want stable happiness, so is everybody else. We're all equal in that way, not just me and others, but all others, everybody. And we're all interconnected and interdependent on each other. We don't exist independently all by ourselves, we couldn't survive. That. And so there are many methods which are used, quite sophisticated methods, to expand our hearts out to everybody equally. And we hinted at some of them before the beginning of this lecture this morning, by recognizing that everybody has been our mother in some previous lifetime, has been kind to us, and so on. And we saw that there could be a dharma light version of this as well, that everybody could act like a mother toward us and take care of us. But there are some limitations with that because it's difficult to apply that to our friend the mosquito. Um, What we develop then is what we call love. Well, first of all, we start with equanimity, what we were speaking about before, of not attracted to some, not repelled from others, and not indifferent to yet others, but open to everybody. And then, on that basis, recognize our interconnectedness with everybody, either on the basis of everybody's been our mother, been kind to us, or just recognizing how everything that we enjoy and make use of comes from the work of others. Sounds this floor, this building, where did the water come from, how did it get here, et This is from the work of others, and we're all equal. And so it's illogical for me to just work for my own benefit, because actually, to gain my benefit, we have to benefit everybody, because I'm yeah. part of everybody. Then we develop love, equally for everybody, which is the wish that everybody be happy and have the causes for happiness. So we're not talking about romantic love, which often is mixed with a great deal of attachment. When we say, I love you, it usually means, I need you, don't ever leave me, I can't live without you, etc., etc. And if the other person doesn't pay attention to us or says something nasty, I don't love you anymore. The type of love we're speaking about in Buddhism has nothing to do with how the other person acts, what they do toward us. Just the wish, may you be happy. It's like we're all part of a body. You know, I would like all my toes to be happy with You know, just some of them. And it doesn't matter what my toe does to me. And then we develop what's called Compassion. Compassion is the wish for others to be free of their suffering and the causes of suffering, and not just the superficial level of suffering, up and down of life, but to be free of the deeper type of suffering, this uncontrollably recurring rebirth. So it's not looking down at them and feeling sorry for them, oh, you poor thing. It is based on respect and an understanding that it is possible for them to be free of their suffering and the causes. It's not just a nice wish. And part of this compassion is taking some responsibility to actually bring this about. There's a great deal of courage there. Then the next step is to develop what's called the exceptional resolve. Resolve is like a strong decision, which is that I'm going to take responsibility not just to help others in a more superficial way or even in a little deeper way, but I'm going to take responsibility to try to help everybody reach the enlightened state of a Buddha. And this is based, of course, on an understanding of what a Buddha is and what's possible and what's not possible Shall in terms stay. of helping others. Remember, a Buddha is not an all-powerful God that can just snap his fingers and everybody's suffering goes away. A Buddha can show the way, a Buddha can inspire us, but we have to do the work ourselves. Nobody can understand reality for us, we have to understand it ourselves. And then final stage in this sequence is to develop what's called bodhicitta. The basis for it is love and compassion, and this exceptional resolve. But now we realize that the only way that I'll be best able to help everybody is if I attain the enlightened state of a Buddha myself. So, driven by love and compassion, bodhicitta is focused on our own future enlightenment, individual, not focused on Buddha Shakyamuni's enlightenment, I'm not uh, focused on enlightenment in general. I'm focused on my own individual enlightenment, which has not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of all the Buddha-nature factors of my mental continuum. Basic, unstained nature, its potentials, and possibilities, etc. And we're focused on that, not yet attained enlightenment, not yet happening enlightenment, with the intention to attain it, and to benefit others as much as possible with that attainment and to benefit others as much as we can all along the way. So this is bodhicitta. It's a very vast state of mind. Um, some people mistakenly think that just meditating on love and compassion, that's bodhicitta. It's not. Love and compassion is the basis for bodhicitta. is much, much more. So... Our aim here with the advanced scope is to attain the state of a Buddha. reason for attaining it is to help others as much as is possible. Driving us to that, love, compassion, this exceptional resolve, bodhicitta. How do we achieve enlightenment? Then we have the presentation of what's known as the six, I like to call them far-reaching attitudes that go very far. They go all the way to the enlightened state of a Buddha. Usually they're called perfections, but that's not a very nice translation. It sounds as though I have to be perfect, I'm not perfect, so I'm not good enough. So this is, in Sanskrit, the paramitas, the six paramitas. So we need to develop generosity to give to others, not just material things, but advice, teachings. Give them what's called? State in which, I mean, we call it equanimity, but what it means is that nothing to be afraid of. From us, I'm not going to get angry with you. I'm not going to cling to you and want to get something from you. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm just going to sincerely try to help you. That's an unbelievable gift that we can give someone. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to reject you because uh, you uh, didn't come to class this week. I'm not going to get angry with you, etc. That's a tremendous gift. So, this is generosity. And then, again, ethical self-discipline, not to act destructively, to act as constructively as possible. The discipline to study, to meditate, and the discipline to actually help others, not say, oh, I'm too tired, I don't feel like it. And then we have patience. Patience is the ability to endure suffering, difficulties, and not get angry, upset. Working on ourselves, trying to help others is not easy. People aren't easy to help. They give us a hard time. Um, We need patience. How to get angry. So we have many methods. Each of these, how to develop generosity, how to develop discipline, how to develop patience. And then the next one is joyful perseverance. Perseverance means that we don't give up. That no matter how hard it is, I'm going to do it and not give up. And I'm going to take joy in helping others. I'm happy that I have the opportunity to help you. And of course, there are many, many teachings and instructions on how to do that, which include knowing when to relax and take a break. Otherwise, we push ourselves too hard and we can't help anybody. And many different methods for overcoming all the different types of laziness that would prevent us from continuing to work. Then we have all the practices for developing mental stability, so this is, includes concentration, but it's a little bit more than just concentration. What we want to have is a stable state of mind that is not going to come under the influence of mental wandering, flying off to objects that are attractive to us, that's not going to get dull and fall asleep, that's going to stay focused on whatever we want to be focused on, like for instance, somebody else when they're talking to us and not have our mind wander off about other things. And stable in the sense that we do not have upsetting emotions don't that will know, disturb the stability. We have to be emotionally stable. So this means neither oversensitive or insensitive, but balanced, stable. Yes. And the sixth one is what I call discriminating awareness which is often translated as wisdom, the perfection of wisdom, Paramita in Sanskrit. But uh, what it's referring to is the ability to discriminate between how things exist and what's impossible. Very specific. The word wisdom is to be. It be oh, this is specifically what we're talking about, that this is impossible, I discriminate, that this is ridiculous, impossible, doesn't refer to anything, and this, I'm sorry? oh, this is, uh, brings in the understanding of voidness, what we were speaking about just shortly ago. So, we work with these practices, with this aim, this motivation, with the citta, etc. Sure. And this is the advanced scope of motivation. In brief, those are the three stages of Lam ridden the graded stages the path to enlightenment. And as I said in the beginning, it's a very vast topic. Yeah, have here in English this three-volume translation of Tsongkhapa's big presentation of this topic. So a lot of things in here, a lot of detail, lots of methods, many centuries of experience that are in here. We don't have to invent this again by ourselves. And as I mentioned on my website, you can find a lot of material that deals with each of the individual topics here. Let's... Just one or two questions. Yes, Okay, very good question. When we differentiate Dharma life from the real thing Dharma, and lay persons, those who are not monks or nuns, follow the real thing Dharma. Yes, definitely. There's no problem. However, it's easier if you don't have the responsibilities of a family and having to earn enough money to maintain them and so on. Or just as easier. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible while having a family. Just positive. more difficult. Is it okay if we choose the easier version? Absolutely, I said that from the very, very start. We need to be honest with ourselves, and for the vast majority, our interest in Buddhism and any spiritual practice is simply to try to improve the quality of this life, and that is perfectly fine. Not only is it appropriate and fine, it's necessary as a start. Just think, oh, I'm doing this for future lives and be a terrible, cruel person in this life. This is absurd. But the thing that I added here was to not reduce Buddhism only to that. To accept the fact that Buddhism really does talk about rebirth and these other things. And the light version is a step in that direction. Buddhism is not just an Asian form of therapy. It's much more than that. No, just proper respect for the actual tradition. Okay, so she's saying, to take a vow for one's entire life, isn't that in contradiction to the middle way? Also, there are many people who, having become a monk or a nun, give up their vows for one reason or another. First of all, I should say that when we talk about, there are other sets of vows, like Bodhisattva vows, tantric vows, those you take for all your lifetimes, all the way up until the night, not just this lifetime, so it's even more. So, what do we mean by a middle path? That's not going to an extreme. An extreme, with regard to vows, would be being totally inflexible. So, for instance, a monk has a vow not to touch a woman, and a nun has a vow not to touch a man. But if you see somebody drowning, if a nun sees a man drowning, it would be ridiculous for the nun to say, Oh, I can't give you a hand, because I'm not allowed to touch a man. This is being inflexible. So, in certain situations, call for being flexible with the vows. On the other hand, the other extreme is to say, well, the vow doesn't really matter. Purpose to the vow. So, in keeping the vows, we do follow a little way. And to take a vow for this lifetime or for all lifetimes means that we're really serious about achieving the goal, liberation or enlightenment. Now, in Thailand, and it's been adopted in Burma as well, You have a possibility to take the vows of a monk or a nun provisionally, just for a a short period of time. It's sort of like either you go into the army or you go into the monastery for a short period of time. And that's nice to have that choice, isn't it? But the Tibetans don't follow that custom, and that wasn't originally the custom in India. And there are various social reasons for why it developed in Thailand and so on. In Thailand and in these Southeast Asian countries, The monasteries are very closely connected with villages. The villages support the monastery in the sense of providing food. And if your own children will at some point be in the monastery for a few months or a year, and you yourself have been in it for a few months or a year, then you're much more involved with the monastery and you would be much more willing to Make a little extra food every time you cook and give it to the monastery, the monks and nuns. So this custom developed for social reasons, actually. Now, what about giving up our vows? As you said, a monk or a nun falling in love and giving up their vows, that happens. And as long as one gives up the vows in a respectful way, without just saying, oh, this was stupid, I made a terrible mistake, but respectfully, that's okay, I cannot keep them then, okay, that happens. I mean, what's important is not to have a negative mind about what we had done in taking the vows, not to feel guilty about having uh, given them up, and not to have terrible regrets. We've given them up in the proper, respectful way we can actually take them again. But in the Tibetan tradition, if we take these vows of a or Anon, the intention is to keep it for the rest of our life. That's why it's very important to check it out. And uh, to try to keep some of them before we take the vows to see am I really able to do this this is really what I want especially when we think in terms of ourselves we're not like the Tibetans that for various social reasons parents put their children in a monastery when they're 7 or 8 years old so let's not take that as our model here in the West because it really doesn't apply any more questions? is yes. happening only on earth or throughout the universe? Ah, very good. Is uh, all of that, what we've been discussing, happening only on Earth, or is it happening elsewhere in the universe? Definitely. Buddhism certainly asserts that life is not only found on this planet, but many, many places throughout the universe. So, as I was joking, if we have the karma to be reborn as a dinosaur, and there are no dinosaur rebirths available now on this planet... Well, we could be born as a dinosaur somewhere else. There's no logical reason why life should be restricted to this planet. Okay, so she asked uh, not a very simple question about the nature of time. Is time linear, the beginning? And can we be reborn past? Well, certainly can't say that time has a beginning. beginning is a measurement of time. So it's illogical to say that Beginning marks between no time and time, but beginning itself is a time word. And so it's actually illogical to think that time could have a beginning. You know, because then, of course, well, what's before that? Beginning implies something before. So, how Buddhism defines time is as a measurement of change, and as a measurement of change. I think it's very complicated and very sophisticated. It's not that there is some sort of line, you know, like time exists as a measuring stick. And we are sort of independent of that and marching along this axis of time. But rather it is, as I say, simply part of the process of change. It's a way of organizing, change. So you say, something's happening now, something already happened, and something has not yet happened. So in Buddhism we don't speak of time with the concepts that we speak of it in the West. It's conceptualized very differently. In the West we think of past, present, and future. Well, that's not the way that Buddhism looks at it. If you think in terms of past, present, and future, then somehow you might think that the future is happening somewhere over there and we could travel to the future or travel to the past and be but reborn in the past as if the past were existing and happening somewhere so Buddhism says this is impossible that's Even not what's going okay. on but uh, rather we conceptualize in terms of already happened happening now and not yet happened so you can only speak in terms of what's occurring what's happening you can't say that the past, present and the future are all happening at the same time it's similar to what we were speaking of in terms of a mental continuum. Or the movie, Star Wars, it's not all happening now in one moment. Only one moment is happening at a time. Whether we're talking about a movie, whether we're talking about a mental continuum, or we're talking about time in general, only one moment happens. You know, when we talk about the rest, it's either already happened or not yet happened. After it's happened, is it sort of sitting off stage, sort of relaxing? And not yet happened is waiting to come on the stage in exactly. order to happen. No. It just happens. Does it come from nowhere? No. three yes. <laughs> Okay, you know, what happens now comes from nowhere. So a nothing becomes a something, and a something becomes a nothing. That also doesn't make sense. It becomes very interesting. Very complicated. And we know what has already happened, and we know what has not yet happened. We do, what do we actually know? I have a very complicated article on my website about this. Okay. The nature of time and what does a Buddha know? A Buddha knows the past, present, and future. So let's end here so with the dedication. Nice. think whatever understanding we might have gained, whatever positive energy has developed, then what we want to do is like save it in the folder in our com- internal computer. Okay. And not just turn off the machine and leave here, and it's not been saved anywhere. If it's something positive, it will automatically be saved in the folder of improve our ordinary samsaric life. A little bit more understanding, we can make interesting conversation over tea or coffee. No, very nice, but not terribly profound. No, dedication is a conscious saving of this in the folder of helping us to reach enlightenment. The folder which is the folder to reach enlightenment, not just to improve this life. I say, this is the real thing, darling. So we think, whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come, may it contribute toward reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all. And this gives a little push to that understanding, to that positive force, go in that direction. Or if we use the analogy of the computer, for to be saved and stored and build up with more positive energy and understanding in this folder of reaching enlightenment. But to do this... That's our thought. Thank you.